I'm only gonna tell you this once. That is now your chair, Captain. My friends, the great experiment. The greatest trick, trick, trick. Hit it. Trick, trick. Would you look at that? The greatest trick, trick. And you people, you're all astronauts on some kind of star trick. Welcome to Greatest Trek. It's a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. Hey, we got a guest today, Adam. A beloved guest. I see him. I'm looking right at him. <laughs> he always wears our shirt. Yeah, he's wearing the shirt of our of a different show, though. I went to podshop.biz. Podshop.biz? Podshop.biz. And I ordered a Greatest Trek shirt, and uh, that was like two weeks ago, and it has not arrived, sirs. Oh. Fuck! Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, and I wasn't going to say anything until you made a deal about it. <laughs> well, they do print them to order, so uh, maybe yeah. it got caught in the printer or something. <laughs> Ho- holiday logistics. That'll that'll happen. Yeah. No worries. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you have a, a signature chef's knife, which I, I gave one of to our friend Adam here uh, for, for the holidays. And you said on your podcast that it probably wouldn't arrive in time for the holidays, and it totally did. It arrived very early. Mike is going to be super happy to hear about that. <laughs> uh, well, we're really excited to have you on the episode today. This is a bit of an experiment. If the experiment goes well, we will also release this as video on our YouTube channel, which I don't know if we've talked about this Adam Pranica very much, but we uh, we've recently begun releasing episodes of our show as YouTube files also. Goose, our subscribers are in the hundreds. You'd be so <laughs> proud of us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> YouTube hasn't sent us anything, anything that, that's remotely like a plaque. No. When does yeah. that happen? When did you get your first plaque? Uh, I got my silver one on schedule, but they never sent me the gold one. Ah. Uh. I just don't, I can't imagine being the kind of person that would ask, so I don't. <laughs> You've moved around recently, though. Maybe it went to an old address. No, no, that would, uh, I went over a million, you know, I was over a million for like a year at the old house. So, yeah. Wow. It's, I, don't, I don't know what it was, but whatever. This is sort of like what happened with my uh, college diploma. It just went to my old address. Or maybe I didn't graduate and I don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not ever going to matter, Ben. <laughs> if it if it turns out that you didn't, then not only is the Uxbridge Shimoda Corporation going to fire you, but probably going to like sue you for fraud, right? <laughs> right. We're yeah. never going to fire Ben. His key card is just going to stop working. Right. <laughs> I kind of feel like if I did try and get a job, not having graduated from college would be less of a deterrent to a potential employer than the uh, current position I hold. So whether, whether I'm fired or, or, uh, or leave of my own volition, I think, uh, I think this is the bigger quandary. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You two are, uh, you two are stuck to each other like glue. No one else will have you. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Goose, you are a dear friend. We've been on your podcast a couple of times and we're so glad that you, uh, were willing to come on ours. Uh, but you've sort of, in many ways, been on our show forever. Forever. Because you made the music for for our shows. It was funny. You know, somebody sent me an email <clears throat> recently, and it was it was real funny. She was sort of an, an – I, I got the sense it was like a, you know, a lady about my age, um, our age, 
who said, uh, you know, she's, like she she's listened to Uxbridge Shimoda family of product podcasts for a long time. Uh, but she's also like, you know, has watched my videos for a long time. And she said, like, you know, you're like a <laughs> this is how she put it. OK, she's referring to me. She said, like, you're like a a man, <laughs> like a yeah. serious man. And like Adam and Ben are like boys. How how in the hell did you guys ever meet? <laughs> That's great. That feels good. First thing I have to say to to um, that person and everyone else is that like, um, you know, as as I am far more unserious than my family of products would would lead people to believe, and you two are far more serious than your family of products would lead you to believe. Thanks for saying so. Everyone know that in fact Ben and Adam are like two serious grown men who think very conscientiously about what they do and the things that they put into the world, they're performing when they're doing comedy podcasts. Like that's a performance, right? Uh oh. <laughs> Don't let that secret get out. <laughs> well, you're not performing knowing things about music. You actually have a, uh, a is mm. it a composition degree? I have almost two composition degrees. Are you, were you ABD? I was ABT, ABT. Well, no, actually I got my thesis done. It was, I, there was like an, there was an exit exam that I just couldn't do. I don't get this uh, ABD, ABT industry jargon stuff. <laughs> you want to back it up and, and tell the friends of DeSoto what that means? ABD is all but dissertation, and it means like mm. someone who did all of their doctoral work except for the very last phase, because often you get hung up on the dissertation um, for all kinds of reasons that you know and and it's it's still it's like it's valuable information to be able to tell a prospective employer that like I'm ba I basically did the thing I just you know now I know why Ben knew exactly what that meant because <laughs> I feel right. like he's had a lot of conversations that have gone like I've done basically what you think I'm here to do yeah yeah no follow-up questions <laughs> he can never quite seal the deal this guy <laughs> yeah that's that's fair I want other I want the people to know, which is that like, you know, Ben's sort of like nebbishy qualities and <laughs> and and Adam's sort of um, naive, innocent, you know, <laughs> sort of vibe. Like these are characters like they're not. <laughs> no, nope, they're real. They're they're real. They're real. Adam. <laughs> when did this turn into the roast of Uxbridge Shimoda? <laughs> All of us who do programming like this, like we're playing characters that are kind of based on who we actually are. Right. Sure. But yeah. like Ben Har Harrison is not a nebbish. Like he gets the deal sealed. Like he's 35 feet tall. He's a True. snappy fucking dresser. <laughs> Don't do me. Don't do me. <laughs> Are you guys the same height? Not at all. No, uh, Ben Ben could keep me in a backpack. <laughs> no, 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 no. Pranica is very, very tall as well. You're like 6'2", um, right, Adam? Uh, I'm six on the button. Six on the button. Wow, mm. you you really wear it like six two though. Well, mm. if I can if I can blow dry my hair, I'm definitely six two. Yeah, look at that. Look at that. Look at that quaff. You got ah. show hair today. Getting it up. <laughs> He's got Anson's mount, doesn't he? He really does. Yeah, I didn't even take a shower today, so I I don't know why I thought this was the the moment we should make our video debut. 
Why is your hair wet then? <laughs> it's raining. I was outside. Oh, that's right. It's like raining in California for the first time in 10,000 years, right? Yeah, yeah. We're uh and we're just watching it all go into the gutter on our street and then wash out into the ocean going like, "Man, if only we could have anticipated this and saved this water somehow. That would have been cool." <laughs> no one built anything here thinking that it would rain for 2 weeks. Yeah. It's really the limit of home construction around here. <laughs> it really is. Oh, oh, so hold on. The other thing, the other, I got to pick up that thread. So the other thing I wanted to say, because that, that, that woman asked how we met. And the thing is, I don't know. <laughs> Did we meet you for the first time at an Atlanta show, like in person? The goose had stayed at my apartment uh, prior to that. I had a live show I was doing at uh, WNYC, and I went and stayed at Ben's house. Oh, so you met him years before you met me. Yeah. In person. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I stayed up in his little tree house. <laughs> we were just talking about the danger loft on the show. <laughs> that, 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 yeah, that was a really scary ladder climb to, <laughs> to, to a loft. Yeah. And I, I generally like those kinds of things, but I was just like, I, I don't feel, I don't feel safe on this. And I'm, I'm a small person. Like we hot bunked in the same bed, Goose. <laughs> yeah. oh. When you stay at my house, you'll never get clean sheets, but you also will never get dirty sheets. I never get sheets. <laughs> you guys had a viewer who who was a was a submarine man and told you about like a a game that they play on submarines called Hide the Shit. Yeah, hot logging. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you, you never know where I hid the log, Pranica. Yeah, yeah. No, we found it when we moved out. <laughs> it was where light bulbs usually go and the salt lamp. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't figure out why it wouldn't turn on for weeks. You know the greatest danger facing us is an irrational fear of the unknown. But we were going to talk about uh, like all of the music of new Star Trek and the, you know, like, I think there's a lot of interesting things to talk about, like what the, you know, like, it's so, it's so weird to be at a time in history where they're making five different series concurrently and those series I'll have to kind of be different things like they were making DS9 and TNG at the same time for a little bit and DS9 and Voyager at the same time for a little bit. And so, you know, they had distinct energies, but the idea of splitting it five different ways and um, and having to have them all sort of feel like they are part of the same universe, but also uh, not part of, you know, not trying for the same thing i guess is is what i'm going for exactly and 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 what's tying them together like who's working on all of those series yeah it's this one guy jeff russo who's writing the music for all the new trek uh, yeah i mean a lot of it and and we actually got to see jeff russo uh conducting some of that uh, at one point um i think was that the end of season 2 that we got to see them recording Pranica. Oh, of uh, Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. 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 Which uh, was really cool. I mean, this was like, <laughs> I mean, it kind of ruined the episode for us, but they were recording the like climactic battle sequence of uh, the last two episodes of uh, the series when we happened to get to go on the WB lot and watch this in action. And um, it was 
it's amazing. Like they record with a full orchestra. <laughs> yeah, uh, the 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 other guy from the band Tonic done good. <laughs> yeah, really cool guy, really nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that for for the listeners who don't know. That's the if you could only see the way she loved me, maybe you could understand. Yep. It's that it's it's not that guy. It's that that guy's second guitar player. Yeah, is Jeff Russo. Um, I did not bring it up, which lost a lot of bets for people when I met him. (laughs) He's got pretty eyes, though, that guy, doesn't he? Good looking dude. Uh, But then uh, this woman, Nami Melamad, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing her last name, is doing uh, this theme for Strange New Worlds. And she collaborated with Michael Giacchino on the Prodigy theme. And she is the first woman to be a Star Trek composer, which... Feels pretty long overdue to me. I see. Okay, so Jeff Russo did the theme for Strange New Worlds, but she's doing the scoring. She's doing the incidental music. Right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that th- that Strange New Worlds theme might be a, a fun way to get into this because it really does feel like a kind of contemporary riff on a 60s classic in a way that a lot of the others don't. Sandy Courage set the template Oh, your friends? <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, Alexander Courage, that's what he was, that's how his friends referred to him his entire life was Sandy, Sandy Courage. How old do you have to be to, to transition into that kind of, of nickname? I can't wait to have an old man name. Sandy's a great one. No time like the present, given that there's two Adams on the same show, so. Oh, shit. What would you like to be? I mean, Sandy, obviously. Okay, well, Sandy Pranica. That's, that sounds good to me. Adam is one of those hard to nickname names. What are what are the are there any like common truncations of Adam? Um, in elementary school, it's usually Adam. Uh, <laughs> but other than that, yeah. Ben and Benjamin also notoriously tricky to uh, to, mm. to make you know fun old man nicknames out of. But uh, but we'll try. We'll figure it out because nobody deserves it more than me. All right, you can be Sandy. Then. <laughs> I'll find something else. Yeah. So allow me to tell. Allow me to tell the listeners the tale of Sandy Courage and the original Star Trek theme that provides the template for everything. All right, do it. Hostess, hostess goose. So, um, so Big Rod, Papa Rod, the original Rod, the biggest Rod. Um, Gene Roddenberry wanted, um. Uh, a uh, another fella by the name of Jerry Goldsmith to uh, to do the music for the original Star Trek. Wow! And and Jerry Goldsmith was too busy, and so he said, "Hey, why don't you try my orchestrator, Sandy Courage?" And if you look at at Alexander Courage's like credits, the dude you know, does, does not have a lot of credits as a, as a composer, right? Like, like this is the most famous thing he's famous for. The second most famous thing he did is like the score for Superman four. Um, <laughs> and then like a bunch of, a bunch of TV and stuff, you know, that's sort of forgotten, unfortunately, but like those are his composition credits. If you go over to his credits as an orchestrator, the dude like orchestrated like half of the movies you've ever heard of from the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. What is the um, difference? What what does an orchestrator do? Is that like a like a dramaturg? <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, I have tried. There's like been like eight times in my life that I've sat down and tried to understand what dramaturgy is, and I've failed each time. <laughs> Nobody knows. It's like a, <laughs> it's like a special kind of scam. Like if you can figure out how to convince people you're a dramaturg, they'll pay you to do it. <laughs> I, 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 I I think where I left off with that is that it's some kind of like um, skin procedure. Um, but... <laughs> No, so orchestrator versus composer. Okay, so um, when you're composing music for a full orchestra, you don't sit down and get like a giant piece of staff paper with like 66 staves on it for every single member of the orchestra <laughs> and start thinking, well, well, let's decide what every single member of this orchestra will be doing or not doing for every second of this composition. Like you, that would be insane, right? Um, so the, the very common way that it has, was done among classically trained people is to compose on what's called short score, or sometimes it's just called a sketch. And that's like five staves of music usually, uh, or thereabouts. And what you work out on those like five staves is like the, the, the bones, but, uh, or, you know, so you'll make some, and then like, it's the kind of, like, if you don't make any notes about instrumentation at all, it means strings. The default is always strings. Default is always strings. Huh. It's kind of like in organic chemistry where like if you don't say what the atom is, it's carbon. Um, <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> Except for John Williams, the uh, the baseline is always brass, right? Like that's that's his thing. Interesting that you bring up John Williams because he's one of the like very rare composers who um, still does things when he's scoring films, does things the way that like, you know, art, you know, symphony composers would do it, which is that they work out their thing in short score and then they orchestrate it themselves. You know, John Williams then takes his short score, goes wow. over to like a giant piece of staff paper and figures out what every single human in the orchestra is going to be doing at every second of that composition. What a maniac. My uncle died of auto orchestration. <laughs> Yeah, they found a uh, they found a bow in his ass and like oh no, oh an, no. another bow tied around his neck and a doorknob. <laughs> he just loved the feel of horse hair. It's the only way he could blast. You, yeah. you gotta rosin up that bow first. If you don't, sure. real bad things happen. <laughs> um so as you can imagine, that's a tremendously laborious process. And it's one that like, you know, you know, Beethoven and Mahler and Mozart, they all they did that themselves because like they had the time. They have the time. <laughs> and a lot of composition happens at that stage, right? You're not just saying who gets which note. You end up writing a lot, you know? Yeah. Um, but anyway, so it takes so much fucking time. And the thing about film scoring is that the way it was conventionally done, and I think still is done mostly to this day, is that it's really like the last step of the process. Um, yeah. the, 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 the edit of the picture go, of the movie goes into what they call picture lock, which means that like they're still changing like the sound mix and stuff like that. But like the, the picture is, is done. Right. And then it goes over to the composer and then the composer has like a matter of weeks, you know, a couple of weeks to like score the entire fucking movie. And there's not the time to, for one person to do that. So, you know, somebody like Jerry Goldsmith would be, you know, would, would write short scores and then pass them down to assistants to orchestrate or maybe to, and now it's a whole farm system where like, you know, Hans Zimmer really just go, goes in and sort of, you know, writes a few 
theme <laughs> ideas. And then he's got like underlings that like are turning those into actual cues and stuff like that. And part of that is because now, because it's so easy to edit both picture and music, I, from what I hear, it's, you know, it's not so much that it's not like the old days where like the, you know, the, the, the composer would get a finished movie. Like they're changing everything a lot. And so, you know, new cues will have to get written, you know, six months after the production was supposed to be done. And like Hans Zimmer is not going to do that. He's going to have an underling do that. Like their composers these days are more like project managers. Well, it's also Hans Zimmer is an example of a composer whose name is recognizable, even if you're not a huge film nerd. And yeah. it's incredible. It has to be so difficult to reach that kind of height in that kind of job that when you hire him, you're you're buying the name. The person who's lucky enough to have that name as their own name makes a shit ton of money. And yeah. all of the underlings who do the actual composing... Uh, to say nothing of the orchestrating and the arranging and all that kind of stuff, they, I mean, it's the pay is apparently ap- I mean, even more miserable now than it was now in the streaming era. Yeah. Um, it's just apparently just horrible. No one can make a living scoring shit anymore, um, which is why, you know, most, most productions have moved to the kind of model that you see a guy like Russo do we're like, yes, for some things, you know, for like the, for the series finale, they'll, they'll let him bring in an orchestra, but mostly what he's doing is just like, you know, he's got a sample library and he's, you know, hitting keys on a keyboard to make kind of whooshy sounds and stuff like that. And he took, and you know, and he'll, I mean, I think I've even seen an interview with him where he talked about like in the early days of scoring discovery, he hired a small orchestra so that he could assemble his own sample library. He just kind of wow. went in there and, and was just like, okay, guys, I want you to go, you know, or something like that. And he just kind of built his own library of samples. Right, right. It doesn't sound like a garage band sample. Uh. <laughs> I was going to ask, like, was your process for making music for our shows, did it ever include paper or was that purely a digital process for you oh i think i've worked out a few ideas on paper for you guys uh when you did the uh dumps without a plan theme that actually involved a real orchestra and a choir and stuff too right well just a, just a choir yeah four four boys at mercer university um <laughs> should, should we send them a check at, at some point like <laughs> I, I paid i paid the money i paid them you paid them yeah we need to reimburse you for that. I don't no, think you we don't. You. I think I think it's fine. Good job, Pierce. <laughs> when I first started working with you guys, I was totally broke, and I would have taken that. Ben, I'm gonna I'm gonna point to the number of YouTube subscribers as a reason for for how this all went down. Okay? <laughs> You're saying that we can take credit for Goose's success? I disagree. <laughs> well, I I mean I worked with you guys before I ever did that stuff, so you know. Yeah. Well, we I, we <laughs> promised exposure, and uh, we paid an exposure. Oh yeah, God, I got so exposed in front of you guys. <laughs> you're the one person um, that exposure didn't kill. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now you know what an orchestrator is. So Sandy Courage was was um was the go to orchestrator for like everyone in the you know in the '60s, um, right. but especially Jerry Goldsmith. And so Jerry Goldsmith couldn't do the theme for the original Star Trek. So Sandy Courage got the job and he set the template 
that has been followed to some extent by everyone who came after him. I mean, some people have ventured a little bit outside of that, but like the basic template of the theme starts with like atmospheric twinkling, right? Um, Meant to lots of silence to evoke the vastness of space, but little bell sounds and stuff that I think, you know, whether he intended it or not, evoke angels. Angels. Yeah. The better angels of our nature. Yes. Um, <laughs> right on the very top of the of the tortoise shell. Yeah. Uh, is um, is that a theremin in the TOS theme? Oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Hold on. That's because that's the next section. That's the next section. Okay. Okay. All right. I don't want to jump ahead to theremin section. <laughs> First, there's the prelude, right? And like almost every Trek property that's has come after has had a prelude kind of like that, you know, where there's atmospheric twinkling and then the single solo brass instrument of exploration comes in, right? Um, Bum, 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 you know, that one. And it, I think what it sort of evokes is like amidst the vastness comes the ship or the human soul or whatever it is, right? And... And so you get like you you have in the in the original Alexander Courage one it's a it's a brass instrument it's like it's a horn the first time and then it goes to a trumpet and it's that Star Trek fanfare that we all know and love and it's fucking classic and killer and timeless and perfect. Then comes the actual theme, <laughs> which in the case of the TOS theme by Sandy Courage is not timeless. <laughs> the <laughs> Right, um, which I'm sure sounded very cool and of the moment at the time, but very futuristic to the very to futuristic, the 60s. yeah, right. But it's not just the it's not just futuristic. It's also like the swinging '60s. It's the bongos that are kind of going, yeah. Like, and it's it to me that the awfulness of that it sort of <laughs> embodies the duality of Rod, right? The duality of Trek. Oh God, listen to you name the episode. How dare you? <laughs> do I get a ding? I've always wanted a ding. It's yeah. your ding. It's your ding until someone can do better. I got dingalinged. <laughs> All right, let's assume that I got dinged. If not, you can cut this out. So, um so the duality of Rod, right? Like the best thing about Star Trek and the best thing about Rod's vision of Star Trek is it's you know, we take it for granted, but it really was revolutionary at the time. The optimism of Trek, the idea of that we could envision the future as something to not be scared of. And and the future is a place where humanity has really figured its shit out and gotten really awesome. And that's great. The, the, the bad thing about Rod's, you know, original vision of Trek is it's like, whose utopia is it? (laughs) It's his utopia. It's like, it's a utopia where the high status white men get to be the captain of the ship and women have to be very young and have to wear short skirts and have to fetch Captain Kirk's fucking coffee, you know? <laughs> and the amount of time they must spend on those beehive hairdos before they even get to work in the morning. Well, hopefully you can replicate those, right? <laughs> if you can if you can be if you can beam the waste out of your alimentary canal, mm-hmm. you can beam a beehive onto your hair, right? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, like it's, you know, so I always think that like in, in the in the Alexander Courage theme, like the opening, the prelude is everything that's good about Rod's vision 
and the theme itself is Hugh Hefner in space. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? It's the swing in 60s. It's 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 Rod's Rod, Gene Roddenberry's utopian vision of a future was one in which he could be carrying on an intimate relationship with Nichelle Nichols and Majel Barrett at the same time, and no one would be upset about that. That's his idea of a future utopia. That's interesting. Like, my film paper is different about what these themes mean. And I think it's not super far off from what you're saying, but like, all of the themes begin so small that to me, it it makes me feel like the, the music begins as one thing or person being alone, and then turns into something collaborative or together or bigger than just the sound of of the one instrument or the one idea that and by the end we're we're really rocking with with all the instruments well sure it's it's collaborative you've got rod and nichelle and majel like all all three of them together right it's (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) very together yeah it's beautiful. How bad do you think Jerry Goldsmith feels for putting Courage and Roddenberry together, given what Roddenberry did to Sandy Courage? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, you know this story? You yeah. tell the story. Oh, well, like, Jerry Goldsmith is like, thanks, but no thanks. Like, I'm Jerry Goldsmith. I got this this friend, Sandy Courage. He's going he's gonna to be great. Shoves him in front of the bus that is Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> <laughs> Sandy Courage does the work and then gets fucked over by Roddenberry when he claimed half the royalties for the theme song to the original series after writing the lyrics. Star Trek, Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock. <laughs> yeah. You nailed yeah. it, Goose. Uh. <laughs> That's not nice. No, no. no. Is that why the theme is the way it is, though? Like, the, like if it was just a a straight like classical composition it would have been weirder to write lyrics for mm-mm, mm-mm. i think that you i think that you have the film paper in your dot matrix printer right now and you don't even realize it um, oh boy <laughs> my theory my my theory that i've always had is that sandy courage wrote that theme to be played on the theremin because the theremin was still the hot shit sort of sci-fi you know um i guess this would have been right after Good Beach Boys' Good Vibrations hit, or or right around the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, because it, it's it it sounds like a theremin melody. It's it's totally idiomatic for the theremin. And the thing about the theremin, though, is that it is possibly the hardest instrument to play of all of the instruments, and that's really saying something. <laughs> um, Even harder you, than trombone, <laughs> dude. At least with a trombone, you're touching something. So yeah. you have some tactile feedback. Right. But the thing about the theremin is that it's just it's just a radio, you know, antenna. I've been playing theremin champ and it's not that hard. <laughs> well, I mean, for, for people who don't know, because, you know, there's like theremin apps and stuff for your phone that you can play. And that's not the theremin. That's like a like a ribbon theremin, which mm-hmm. is much easier to play. The actual theremin is just a radio uh, antenna. And you move your hand in the vicinity of that antenna, thereby disrupting the electromagnetic field surrounding it. And that information goes to a very simple synthesizer and makes a note. My grandpa's body was found with a theremin ribbon wrapped around his neck. 
<laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. That's been going around. Very sad. Yeah. yeah. We don't talk about it. <laughs> it closed casket at the funeral. <laughs> they just left it wrapped around you, is what I'm yeah, saying. You, you get close to the, to the casket and it's like... <laughs> And then they lower him down into the dirt, and it's like, woo, 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 woo. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, I heard Larry David was actually at that funeral, and he looked at it, and he's like, "Is that my therapist?" <laughs> <in the casket? laughs> so I, you know, I. The least surprising thing about me is that I bought a theremin in college and tried to actually <laughs> learn it. So, how much time did you have to play it between all that fucking? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and the thing, I mean, not only do you get zero tactile feedback when you're trying to play f actual fuck, because it's super easy to make cool sounds. You can just go, you know, whatever you can do interpretive dance around it. And like, you'll get cool shit. But if you're trying to play actual notes, there's a great theremin player named Clara Rockmore, who was like the only great theremin player. And she sort of worked out this whole kind of technique of moving her fingers in these really specific ways to kind of control the notes. But the main problem with it is that there's nothing, you're not touching something against which you can steady your hand. Like right. when you play the violin, a violin is really fucking hard, but like at least you're, you're pressing your finger against a board of wood and you can stabilize yourself against it. Whereas like when your hands are just floating in the air, it's fucking impossible, you know? So theremin was like really big as like the as a soundtrack instrument but there were like two guys in LA who could play it and my theory is that is that they just couldn't get one of those guys on the day and so they brought in a lady to sing the theremin part instead and she goes Ooh, right <laughs> wait so that's not actually a theremin no that is a lady i'm learning that in the moment <laughs> Amazing. Well, there's a new ship. You treat her like a lady. You treat her like a lady. She'll always bring it home. I have tried so many meal services over the years. After all, I am a podcast host. And I gotta tell you, Factor Meals is my favorite. Why? Because I can go from, what am I gonna have for dinner, to eating a great dinner, in exactly two minutes with Factor Meals. And don't sleep on their smoothies either. I got six of these in the box this week. Mango, tropical fruit, strawberry or banana. They're all amazing. They're like meal supplements I can enjoy while I'm on the go. Head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use the code trek50 to get 50% off. Again, that's the code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. What do you think of when you think of male grooming? Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product, or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave, a little spritz of fragrance. Me? I think of shaving my nuts. And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. 
They sent me their brand new lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer, featuring two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth, wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra-large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. Hi, Adam Pranica here for Podshop.biz, the easy way to dress, drink, and decorate virtually anything fast with embarrassment that lasts. Podshop.biz is not a cult, and it's not a multi-level marketing scheme. It's a supercharged carousel of crap spinning at a high rate of speed for all your dorky needs. Ordinary web stores are a mess, but with Podshop.biz, you'll find products from all of our shows referring to many of our most popular bits. Shirts, glasses, and bags from other websites can damage your mood, but not with Podshop.biz. Our nerdy, jokey bullshit will rebuild your damaged attitude and turn you into a person with riz. Turn your laptop from off the shelf to off the hook with a sticker. Make pool time cool time with our line of hilarious swimwear. And stop raw-dogging your smartphone. Strap it up with the choice of designs that'll have you go from saying hello to hello. But that's not all. At podshop.biz, you can choose from the Brenner Information Systems Collection, the Uxbridge Shimoda Corporate Collection, this old enterprise, logos for Greatest Generation and Greatest Trek, and more. Order now at podshop.biz. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on. Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. The greatest trend is yet to come. to come. I think the thing that is most remarkable about that stuff after the single brass instrument is how little impact it had on the rest of Star Trek and how much the 
because I mean, the stuff that they're composing now is super cinematic and scopy and bombastic and maybe we will remember it as being corny but like the next generation theme we don't you know the next generation theme is just a is just a film score level i mean i guess they used it from they re recycled it from one of the films but like yeah so the, that's the thing because they finally got jerry goldsmith who was who they wanted in the first place and he did the score for the for the motion picture can you imagine Jerry Goldsmith taking that meeting and being like, you're not going to fuck me over like Sandy, right? <laughs> I know how you are, Star Trek Industrial Complex. Yeah, yeah. You'll find in my contract that, that none of my music will ever have lyrics. You understand? <laughs> Don't ever fuck me, Rod. Don't ever fuck me. You don't fuck me like Sandy. Yeah, but like, but like up through Voyager, like we got we got Star Trek themes that are without corn. And then, yes. you know, they went back to the corn for enterprise, but like, <laughs> but, the, but a, a whole different like species of corn, you know? So I, before we say anything bad about faith of the heart, <laughs> I'm not saying anything bad. I'm just saying it's not a, it's not a classical like motion picture theme. Yes. I mean, A, I want to say two nice things. One is that, A, it was a bold choice on the part of the producers to be like, let's, instead of having a, an incredibly grand, you know, um, uh, you know, brass instrument of, of exploration kind of situation like we've always done. And, the, you know, and the themes for Voyager and, um, and uh, uh, DS9 are gorgeous, right? I mean, those are both absolutely gorgeous brass instrument of heroism sort of situations and it was very bold of the producers to be like let's do a pop song for the theme to enterprise so that's the one nice thing i want to say the other nice thing i want to say <laughs> is that that song that's it's by uh diane warren oh, diane warren who is like she's on the mount music more of all of music one of the greatest professional songwriters of all time and yeah. she's still at it today you they know? didn't go to the wrong person well, it would it already existed that song. That had already been a minor hit for Rod Stewart. Um mm -hmm. and for the movie Patch Adams. <laughs> um Are you kidding? That's where I remember yeah. it. Yeah, that's where it's from. Um and this is right around the time that like Diane Warren wrote the Aerosmith song for one of those um nineties asteroid films. I don't remember which it was. Um Don't want to miss a thing. Yeah, I don't want to close my eyes. I don't want to fall asleep because I miss you, baby. That that's Diane Warren. Like she's a you know, and Tony all the Tony Braxton songs, and uh, you know she's a fucking beast, you know. And she's someone who like works, right? She works. She writes dozens of songs a year to this day. Publishes dozens of songs a year to this day, and you know they're not all going to be winners. And Faith of the Heart isn't even like. It's 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 a minor win, you know. It's a bit of a win. The main problem with it is that I feel like they, I mean, they couldn't afford Rod Stewart, obviously, and you can't have two rods in one situation anyway, um. unless you're a Klingon. <laughs> mm. How would we think of it differently if it were the Rod Stewart version? I think so, because the guy the guy they got. The guy they got, I think they were kind of like, we need a man with a raspy voice because it's Rod Stewart. So they got this guy who sounds like he's singing like like a white snake ballad, you know, like a power ballad from the from the mid to late 80s, which was 15 years ago. It sounds like it's Dan Hill singing It's a Long Road from the end of First Blood. Like it's that kind of 
know. Yeah, wow, I never made the connection, but that's, like, is it actually the same guy? It might be, I don't know. But it's like, it it sounds passe to, I mean, it's not just that it sounds passe to us now. I mean, that, that series came out in what, like 2001 or something? Like, that voice was 15 years too late. Yeah. It really was. It, it would it would have been like hiring Jimmy Jameson to do the theme for disco. <laughs> Though, God, I, I would pay some of my meager fortune to hear that right now. I think that the thing about all of the new themes is that they're all like really distinct. And I really like all of them. Like, I think I think they all really hit for me. They and and that seems like a magic trick all by itself. The the fact that. They took five series and made five really quite distinct uh, theme songs. Like, I guess you could make the case that there's some DNA in common between, like, the disco, you know, like the Jeff Russo ones sound like Jeff Russo music, uh, I guess you could say. But, I mean, I guess that's something you could say about any composer that's worked upon across multiple films or television shows. I think all of them sort of... A, they all capture, they've definitely all very intentionally tried to capture the atmospherics of the Alexander Courage prelude, right? Like they all, that's their jumping off point, right? And that's awesome. Um, And then once you get into the actual theme, I think they all, all the new Trek themes swing on, on the same axis on which Trek themes have always swung, which is between heroism and and mystery and 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 maybe when the needle gets really really far on the side of mystery it 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 tips into um you know d- danger you know yeah um uh ha- you know hazard um a nervousness that you that you really hear in for example the uh the theme to undiscovered country right sure. um which is you know a totally different theme like a, a there's there's a menace to it um I think that the Picard theme has a lot of menace to it as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like we uh, have talked about how dark that show is compared to TNG and in, in kind of a surprising way. Like, they, it's almost a retcon of the character. Like, let's take the, the character that isn't haunted and, and make him haunted and make him, uh, you know, put him in situations where he's, like, fighting the, the demons of the past. Um so, so the theme is is super different to accommodate for that, I guess. But it's still, I still, I still like it because I feel like it's still on the core spectrum, right? It's got the kind of, it's got the spacey atmospherics, and it's still, it's it's mystery verging on menace, right? But it still evokes the kind of the mystery, the the fascination of the unknown of the of the vastness of space, which is great, you know. I'm really impressed with how the Lower Deck score, like the score for a comedy series, sounds so seriously like a Star Trek theme without feeling like it's explicitly derivative or a send-up. That's part of the joke. That's that's what makes the comedy land. That's part of the joke, right? It's that it's like... How serious it takes it. Yeah, I definitely get that, but... But I think part of its magic is that, like, I don't know, I really like the Chris Westlake work in all of Lower Decks, especially in the parts when it intends to be serious. Like, when it's not a comedy show, it sounds like as hardcore Star Trek as any series or movie. Do you guys think 
the have the kind of feeling that I have that maybe Lower Decks is like the best of the new Trek. I kind of feel like Lower Decks is the best of the new Trek. I'm not here to call anything the best, but it is <laughs> like it is it's definitely one of my favorite shows. It's so smart to take the music really seriously also cuz I think that you know, in less capable hands, this is a comedy show. And like in, in hands that are maybe less confident in um, standing up to the pressures of, um, you know, suits and stuff. Like, I'm sure that there have been conversations, uh, you know, higher up at at Paramount. Like, you know, if, if we're going to be doing something like Lower Decks, shouldn't it be like very nakedly just a silly show and not... Uh, you know, not in canon, like, like you know, yeah. I mean, who knows how much suits care about canon or not, but, um, but like, I think that, um, you know, the fact that the people making Lower Decks really care about Star Trek comes through, like the, the you know, Star Trek is only the butt of the joke when it's the kind of joke that we all love to make about Star Trek. Well, it's kind of reminds me of when I brought those four boys into my office at Mercer to saying stupid words to you keep saying that and it ca- it sounds worse and worse every time <laughs> it does <laughs> when i paid them their 200 dollars cash to uh <laughs> each to uh to uh come into my office for an hour and sing s- sing stupid words to an absolutely grand gorgeous piece of music um which was the theme to red october by um oh, what's his name with the greek name uh, Basil Paladoris, is that how you say his name? Yeah. Um, but who, who, by the way, played a fucking red shirt in a TOS episode when he was a younger man. Pretty awesome. Um, so therefore, Hunt for Red October is canonical Trek. But anyways, like when I brought these guys in to sort of sing these stupid words to this grand piece of music, they were like, how how do you want us to like play this? Should we be silly? And I was like, no, the joke is going to be if you make it sound grand. You know, that's what's going to make it funny. Like, do it the way that you would do it if it was if it was Mahler, you know, um, that's a bad example because Mahler didn't write choral music. Um, do it the way that you would do it if it was Wagner, you know, and um, and they did. And and it was funny, you know, and I think that's the same approach they take to Lower Decks um, is make it, you know, you make it ev- you make everything about it like real Trek except for the jokes. Well, in so many ways, like whether it's music or it's in dialogue or in whatever, like don't tell me how to feel Mm, is a quality of great work. And Lower Decks as a as a musical composition is very much about that in a way that the moments in Discovery that that don't hit as hard for me is when the music and the dialogue and everything is telling me how to feel. I suffer from a like the disease of not knowing what to feel a lot of the time. So I sometimes appreciate it. <laughs> He's a robot. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Can I just shoehorn in like my favorite anecdote about Star Trek music of all? Please yeah. do. It's it's the greatest thing ever. Okay, so you'll recall that in Jerry Goldsmith's score for Star Trek: The Motion Picture, the leitmotif for V'ger is like a sort of like a sound effect kind of thing. It's like a thing, um, an instrument that goes, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. So the sound is uh, a piece of, uh, is is a a sort of a novel 
instrument that was invented by a, a gentleman named Craig Huxley, who was a jazz pianist in L.A., who as a boy had been a child actor and had played Captain Kirk's fucking nephew in cool. the TOS episode Operation Annihilate. That's Craig Huxley. Yeah. That little boy grows up to be Craig Huxley, the jazz pianist who invents an electronic instrument that he called the blaster beam. That's basically like it's this incredibly long aluminum casing with a bunch of steel wires inside it that you can smack or pluck or or apparently they used to hit it with a like a like a um, slap or tickle. <laughs> no, 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 no! Like a fucking, uh, like a shell, like a like a piece of ordnance, right? Oh wow! Um, yeah, <laughs> and they had, and then there's a. He basically just wired a bunch of guitar pickups through this aluminum casing, and he you could sort of slide them around in order to change the sound, and it's it's this really really distinctive sound that was the voice of V'ger, and ended up being used um, on James Horner's. Uh, score a little bit for Wrath of Khan. <laughs> By the time they came down to, to do Wrath of Khan, they did not have the money for Jerry Goldsmith anymore, and so they had to go to. <laughs> that was that was like that was James Horner's breakout gig. He was 28 years old when he wrote that. He had done nothing before. Um, How big was that instrument? Do you think? Like, could you put it in the bed of a pickup truck? Or no, is no, it... no, 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 no. It goes from one end of the stage to another. That's amazing. I Google image search that you do have to take off uh, safe search um, to, to get an image of it. <laughs> there you go. So the thing about the blaster beam is that there are several published accounts of uh, women being uh, sexually stimulated by it. No way. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, Good vibrations are, are one of the things that it produces is what you're saying. Yeah. Um, Including apparently like a mass instance of this where the instrument was being played at an outdoor concert at in Central Park in the like <laughs> 1990 or something where several women reported similar symptoms, shall we say. Um, a lot of very confused husbands. <laughs> we got to go to more concerts. <laughs> I'll have what she's having. Yeah. <laughs> um, I ran it by my lovely lady uh, earlier today and she was quite skeptical that there is a resonant frequency that uh you know really rattles the the little man in the boat um but uh so i'm i'm going to say it's bullshit but it's a funny story and i felt like if there's any venue for that story it's the Uxbridge Shimoda family of podcasts well, I've got great news for you, Goose. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for the Blaster Beam right now, and a radio station called Tusser FM 107.3 in Australia conducted an experiment where they played a continuous loop of Blaster Beam performance and asked their female listeners to call in and report any stimula stimulation they experienced. And stimulation is linked to... <laughs> the Wikipedia article for for sexual stimulation. <laughs> that link's already been clicked on your computer, right, Ben? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, that that one's purple already. Uh -huh. um, on this occasion, none of the show's listeners reported any arousal. That's whatsoever. not going to do it. A radio cannot produce the low frequencies necessary to that could conceivably produce the you never intended result. Rode around in cars when I was in high school. Goose. That was the case. 
get a couple of uh, JL bazooka subs in the back of a pickup truck. <laughs> That'll do it. She'll always bring it home. One thing I wanted to uh, bring up that this is kind of a left turn here is the uh, is the 2009 Star Trek theme, which I feel like is a great theme. It's one of my favorite Star Trek themes, but it also hasn't really had the same staying power as some of the others. Like we hear some of the you know melodic um, you know sequences from DS9, Voyager, TNG reused in a lot of the modern series, and obviously TOS stuff it gets reused all the time. But I don't hear that. 2009 Star Trek theme come up that much anymore. Are you talking about what plays over the credits or or some other part of that movie where the 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 credits theme I guess is is what I'm thinking of specifically. How do you say his name Michael Giancino? Is that how you say his name the composer of that? You're the guy with Italian heritage, man. <laughs> so, he he had gotten his big break is that he scored the series Lost. Um, oh. And that's how he worked with, because J.J. Abrams was that Lost. was that, that, Didn't he make that show? J.J. Abrams did make Lost. Yeah, okay. So that first film was, was it called Into Darkness? Is that what that was? Just Star Trek is what it was called. Yeah, you often right. see it styled as Star Trek 2009 these days. Got it. Um, so I went to go see that movie, even though I had deep misgivings about it that were justified by the watching of the film. I hate those movies. Um, <laughs> Whoa. Oh, I hate him. Oh, my God. Oh, I see. But I was like, what I was really curious about is I was like, I heard that Michael Giancino had scored it. And all I had heard of Michael Giancino was lost. And I was curious, does this guy know how to write actual like music? Right. Like, or it is like, I mean, I mean, like, like, a, you know, a, like a theme with like notes as opposed to kind of, you know, making sound effects with the orchestra. I'm shocked that you would question that after watching Lost for all those seasons, because I watched every episode of Lost, and there was no doubt in my mind that he was capable of what he did in in the Star Trek films, and I thought he did a great job on them. You're a much better person than I am, but yeah, I was fucking blown away. I was like, that theme is... I didn't didn't like it, because it it sort of... Again, it, it, it teetered beyond evoking mystery and into danger and hazard which is not what i come to star trek for right and why mm. i ultimately did not did not like those movies is, is they're just they're just fucking action movies which it's like if you just want to watch an action movie watch something good don't watch fucking star trek right like <laughs> you got i i come to star trek for tng a whole bunch of people sitting around a fucking conference table yeah, yeah. you know w- working out a complex problem I want irritated diplomats, all right? <laughs> I think Birth of James Kirk in that cold open is one of the best eight minutes that Star Trek has ever made across its entire franchise. And I think Michael Giacchino's work is a big reason for that. They're like, they're fun action movies. And Giancino, Giancino's score is... I think it's pronounced Gabagool. Gabagool. <laughs> Michael Capicola's uh, score <laughs> is hot shit. It's really great. But I hope you love interviewing the likes of Ragusia forever, Ben, because we're never going to get anyone who works in Star Trek after this. I wanted to get this question answered from all of us because I think this is like what 
most viewers would probably want to know, but like across all of the Star Trek series and movies, what is your favorite piece of Star Trek music or your favorite movie score or your moments that involved music? Absolutely nothing beats Jerry Goldsmith's theme from the motion picture that became the theme to TNG. There's a reason that Daddy Rod resurrected that when he um, started his new TV series. That's the, the, the very best theme that has ever been written for Trek. And I don't, I'm not saying it's the best music that's ever been written for Trek. I'm, I mean the best theme that is like a highly identifiable, singable, melodic idea, right? I think there's individual cues that have been awesome across the franchise in, in so many places. Um, one that comes to mind is in the the TNG movie, the first TNG movie. What's that one called? G- Generations, right? Um, yeah. The cue that is in when Picard ends up in the Matrix and... <laughs> That's where he is. <laughs> that creepy Victorian Christmas girl. Yeah, <laughs> it's like I love my dolly, Grandpa, or whatever. Like, bend my spoon, Grandpa. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh shit! It's not called the Matrix, is it? <laughs> what the fuck is it called? It's the Nexus. <laughs> the Nexus. Okay. You could be for- forgiven for confusing the two. <laughs> Um, there's a cue in the Nexus when when Picard is 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 living his best life in a creepy Victorian Christmas tableau, and that that cue is gorgeous. And I remember I forget who the composer was on that, but I read an interview where he said that was the best cue he ever, he'd ever written. Um, he thought, and I had you know, Dennis McCarthy did the music for. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 nice, nailed it. Um, I th- I think I agree with you that TNG is the best theme. I do uh, want to give a special citation to that orchestral hit in the DS9 theme when the space station first appears on screen. Oh fucking and a man! That, <laughs> yeah. that like that gave me goosebumps the first time I saw it. I I remember it really vividly watching the new Star Trek show and just feeling like we are in we are in for something actually good at this point you know (laughs) and what's what's funny is that like that i associate that family of themes like so there's there's the one that goldsmith wrote for the for the motion picture and then the themes for ds9 and voyager were obviously composed in that mold right um and i think of those themes as sounding heroic um but what Jerry Goldsmith was thinking when he wrote it is what Rod told him was that this is a Western in space. I want you to write a Western theme, right? Um, and and that's and and that's even more so the case with DS9 because DS9 was like them getting back to the idea of a Western in space. It's a border town, you know. Right. Um, it's a gritty border town, and I guess I just don't. I haven't watched like the great Hollywood Westerns to to know what that vocabulary is, because the only Western music I think of is like Ennio Morricone, because that's all just such great fucking music. And that's not the same kind of thing. It's not heroic. I think it's Ennio Gabagool, technically. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We got one for theme to the motion picture slash... Star Trek The Next Generation. We got one for the moment the station is revealed 
in Deep Space Nine. Yeah. How about you? I don't even know if mine counts, but like one of my core musical memories where like I really, it sounds super cheesy, but like I felt the power of music for the very first time was being in a concert band playing wind instruments and we got to play Holst's The Planets. And I'd never felt what being in a band like at full power felt like before until I got to sit there and play that music. And hearing that in Star Trek VI makes that film score really meaningful and powerful to me. And it's it's like a riff. It's not It's not directly yeah. hosts the planets, but I'll never forget the first time sitting in a theater watching that movie. And it's an entire story during the credits before Praxis explodes. Like, I'm getting chills, like, even even thinking about it and talking about it, because you go through the entire story arc in melody before seeing the movie, and then we're in the movie and we get to re-experience that for the next two hours. I think, like, that's the power of music to me, and that's why that's my favorite score. It's... It's like the movie's talking dirty to you. It's like telling you what it's going to do to you, and then it does it to you. I love that score so much, and that's part of what makes that movie so rewatchable to me. I just love it. Yeah. But don't forget that the only Trek cue that has ever been alleged to bring ladies to climax is V'ger's Bwong. I know. (laughs) V'ger's Bwong. (laughs) <laughs> is uh, a piece of glassware I think I'm going to look for uh, <laughs> out on Melrose. <laughs> That's that yeah. needs to be some kind of merch at Podshop.biz. Is Viger's Bwong? Yeah, can we can we legally but, ship a Bwong across yeah, state lines? Sure, it's just for incense, Ben. You can smoke tobacco out of it. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have to look into that. Uh, see if our uh, our print on demand service has anything <laughs> appropriate. Yeah, it'll get to you in six months, Goose. Hey, I don't need it. Okay. All right. I I don't need it. Some people might need it, but I don't need it. All right. I get the job done. <laughs> well, uh, should we should we wrap this up? I mean, we've this has been a very like loose, extemporaneous conversation, but. Uh, I don't know. Any any final thoughts you want to share about Star Trek music, Adam Ragusea? Um, it's been a lot of fun making the things that you've asked me to make for you and to like work in little things that are kind of references to, to real Trek music. Um, and at the same time, real references to Dark Materia's um, Picard song theme, which is sort of the jumping off point for everything that we do together. Yeah. And so it's, it's so... I mean if it was important enough for someone to write a film paper about it, like you could talk about like intertextuality (laughs) until the, (laughs) until the cows come home looking at like a theme, like the original, the original um, discovery podcast theme that I wrote for you guys that like contains lots of references to Trek things, but also references to how dark materia interpolated Trek things. Right. And that was all a ton of fun. And, and largely built just out of the trailer for Discovery, which was like, that was the material we had at the time that you made that theme. That was a tricky job. Uh, that was not, not, not one of the easiest ones. Um, but there's just simpler things like um, the, the little bed that I wrote for you guys for when you open up mail and somebody glitter bombs you. Um, 
the what do we call that one? The Picard uh, Code Forty Seven that we call yeah. that one. Yeah. I was just so down and getting a real kick out of writing that little part for you guys, and uh, and being really appreciative that I could do this with you guys and have this the, the fun that we get to have together. And we really appreciate our relationship with you, man. Uh, you make our show better. You make our comedy better. Uh, and it's just great to be friends with you. You make me better in the kitchen. I, I've learned so, so much from your shows. Uh, and uh, I'm so glad you're doing the podcast now because I am I think we, Adam and I are both weekly listeners of that. And um, Oh, you're the two. <laughs> they should send us a plaque, Ben. Yeah, I I only season my cutting board now. You know that's uh that's the law in our house. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, how do people find uh, what you do? I mean, this will be this may be going out on YouTube, but it may also just be in our podcast feed, depending on acts and whether or not they get together. Uh, if you go into the podcatcher on which you are listening to this program. Uh, this fine program. You can simply search my name, uh, which is Adam Gabagool, um, which, <laughs> which is spelled R-A-G-U-S-E-A, Ragusea, uh, but it's pronounced Gabagool. And uh, and you can do the same on YouTube. My podcast also cross posts to YouTube um, on Mondays. And then on Thursdays, I do a video, um, which it's is sometimes just a recipe, but it's also sometimes some other kind of video about food usually sort of a, a science-y or historical explainer sort of thing. Um, and if you don't like any of my, like, videography, you can blame Adam and Ben because <laughs> I was a fucking, like, public radio reporter when I fell bass-ackwards into YouTube stardom. And I think you turned out okay, Goose. I called you, Adam, and I was just like, I don't understand white balance. Why does the color keep changing? <laughs> when when people have questions about white balance, they come to me. <laughs> Adam, white balance pranica. <laughs> Goose, it's been so fun having you on the show. Uh, I hope we uh, can have you again sometime soon. Um, with that, I think we need to move on and uh, check our Priority One inbox. So we'll say bye-bye to you and bye-bye to the viewers on YouTube. And uh, go do that now. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on Secured Channel. Adam, we got a couple of Priority One messages here in the inbox. First is from your nerdy father, and it's to Lily. Goes like this. Happy 14th birthday to my youngest child who has spent many a car ride to and from school listening to the greatest track and rolling her eyes. I love you, Schmoopy, as much as I love embarrassing you. <laughs> Can't imagine a worse <laughs> ride to school than the one where this P1 plays, Ben. Maybe windows down, <laughs> pulling up to the turnaround and uh, yeah, and and dropping Schmoopy off with, uh, with... Lily, we, we feel you. We... We apologize for your nerdy father. <laughs> hey, nerdy father, really, really slow roll the, the creep up to the drop-off area, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know what kind of system uh, you're working with in the car. Crank it up a little louder than mm -hmm, usually mm -hmm. would, I'd say. Yeah, we want them to hear this in, all the way in the office. Yeah. Have them start wondering, what is the greatest trek, and is it appropriate for a 14-year-old? What's the best drop to use in a 14-year-old school drop-off turnaround. I think we're about to find out. 
Resisting all day, things are going your way. When along comes Jake Sisko, or wrench in your plan, assume that he is the man. Way you laughs at Jake Sisko. He's got bad ideas and he's got no chill. Should be with his dad, but he's got stories to kill. Why he's there, the reasons are nil. Because for some reason, Jake Sisko. It's me, Jake. <laughs> that was not what I expected. Yeah. Well, uh, happy fourteenth <laughs> to Lily. Yeah, and uh, sorry about all the all the totally inappropriate stuff we say. I'm not at all. I think mm. I think these will be treasured memories for you both. <laughs> ben, our second priority one message is from Sam, and it is to Adam and Ben. Message goes mm. like this: I'm answering your call for P1s by paying a hundred dollars to recommend an episode of Babylon Five. Oh no! <laughs> there is a late show episode featuring two lower deck type servicemen as they manage their jobs during off-screen crises. It's one of the show's most creative episodes and would be a great companion for the next season of The Lower Decks. Think about it. Wow. Hmm. If uh, <laughs> if we're ever desperate enough to, uh, to review a Babylon 5 episode, that one will be up there at the top. <laughs> I can't imagine the level of desperation I'd I'd be at at that moment. Rock bottom is is really is yeah. what that would mean. I think if you be... ever see a, a Babylon Five app in our feed, it's it's most definitely a cry for help. <laughs> yeah. yeah, alert the relevant authorities in your area. Yeah, uh, we may we may be in a really bad way. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you are uh, you know a nerdy dad looking to embarrass your teen or. Somebody who would just like us to roast you uh, for your love of Babylon 5. You can address both of those needs by going to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron and setting up a P1 today. All right, Ben. Uh, no Edward Larkins this episode, except I think we could probably agree that the goose has permanent yeah. Larkin status. Absolutely. Enshrined. He's, uh, he's the Larkin of our hearts, I would say. Yeah, sure is. All right, well, uh, there is more to come from Greatest Trek. What kind? You will find out in the credits. Yes, let's find out what kind of come is next <laughs> on Greatest oh, Trek. Geez. What's to come? Well, we'll be back in two weeks with a review of IDW's three-issue Lower Decks comic miniseries by Ryan North and artist Chris Finoglio. The Greatest Trek is an Uxbridge Shimoda podcast on the Maximum Fun Network. It's hosted by Ben Harrison and Adam Pranica, produced by Wendy Pretty, and this episode was guest edited by Rob Adler. It's always a huge help if you can rate and review the show. Another thanks to our special guest, Adam Ragusia, who made our theme and interstitial music. And don't forget to check out Adam's YouTube channel and podcast. You can keep up to date with us on social media by following at Greatest Trek. And a big thanks to the car daddy, Bill Tilly, who runs those accounts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of The Greatest Trek. MaximumFun.org 
comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.